I'm sure some of you are going to be somewhat surprised and others may be even shocked to hear me say what I'm going to say. But I want you to be patient because I have an explanation. I want to tell you that our greatest challenge today as the church of Jesus Christ and even as a society is not immorality. Immorality is not the most dangerous threat that is facing us today. Immorality is not the greatest challenge that is challenging our Christian conviction. Immorality is not all that worrisome difficulty that we are facing today. Let me explain. Immorality says, break the moral standards. Break the moral absolutes. Break the moral code. Break the moral norm. And I have to confess to you, even a blind person can probably sense something that is broken. And that is why I said immorality is not the most dangerous thing. But what is the most dangerous thing that we're facing today is our morality. Our morality says nothing about breaking the moral absolutes. Our morality says there is no such thing as moral standards. There is no such thing as moral absolutes. And that is far more dangerous than immorality. And that's what we're facing today. What we're seeing is that our culture and the media and some in the education system and in the courts and some of the legislators seem to have conspired together to tell the people today is that it is up to each individual to decide his or her moral standards or absolutes. Not only that, but there are pressure groups that are working within the education system that they seem to be hell-bent on ramming this amorality down the children's throat. I believe with all my heart that the very fiber that has weaved Western civilization together was made of biblical and moral absolutes. That the very foundation upon which Western civilization was built is the God of the Bible being a moral God and that he is the author of moral absolutes. It's the very essence of Western technological development was extracted from the nectar of God's moral standards and God's moral laws. And when we do away with the fiber, we literally tear out the fabric. When we do away with the foundation, we destroy the structure. And when we do away with the essence, we're going to end up with some poor, fake, flimsy imitation of the real thing. And I want to tell you that if this persisted, we have only one certain future. And it is a future of chaos and confusion. Even some traditional Christian voices are now screaming at God's moral laws as outdated, as outmoded, as irrelevant for today. And yet, that's not what Jesus said. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 5, beginning at verse 17. We have looked at the Master's Manifesto, the Beatitudes, and then we started going down on Matthew chapter 5 to continue seeing how that manifesto is lived out. We saw what it means to be salt and we saw what it means to be light. And here the Lord Jesus Christ confronts us with something of vital importance. 
In fact, this passage in Matthew 5, 17 to 20 kind of break themselves naturally into four outlines. First of all, God is the author of the law. Secondly, the Lord Jesus Christ is the authenticator of that law. Thirdly, he who abrogate this law is doomed. And fourthly, God will only accept those whose righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. God authored the law. It was not Moses who wrote the law, but it was God himself. In Exodus chapter 20, before the law was given, God spoke all these words, not some of these words, but all these words and said. You know, one of my favorite writers is George Will. George Will can string words together like very few people that I know, and I just love Good words when they're strung together. In his book, Man at Work, here's what George said. He said, baseball umpires are carved from granite. They are stuffed with microchips. They are professional dispensers of pure justice. And then he goes on to tell this story. He said, when Babe Pianelli, an umpire, called Babe Ruth on a strike... Ruth made a populist argument. Ruth reasoned fallaciously, George will add, (laughs) from raw numbers to moral weight. And he said to the umpire, 40,000 people here who know that that last one was a ball, tomato head. (laughs) Pioneer replied with a measured stateliness of John Marshall. Maybe so, but mine is the only opinion that counts. (laughs) I want to declare to you that we believers in the Lord Jesus Christ today in this country may be pressed by the weight of numbers of those who are lining against the laws of God. But we know now and we know that at the end there is only one opinion that counts. There is only one opinion that matters. And that is the opinion of the beneficence umpire of the whole universe. God spoke all these words and said, he authored the law. God gave it to Moses. God spoke to the people through the prophets. God authored it. God inspired it. And I want to tell you, before I continue in this passage, that the Jews during the time of Jesus had four ways in referring to the law. So you understand what Jesus meant here. You've got to understand the way they were thinking. They refer to the Ten Commandments as the law. They'll say the law means the Ten Commandments. Or they can say the law and it means the first five books in the Bible. Or they can say the law and it means the whole Old Testament. But often that was added the word and the prophets. And that's what Jesus is saying here. The law and the prophets. But a fourth way by which some of the Jewish leaders would refer to is the interpretation by some rabbis of the law. It is in volumes and volumes and volumes of books called the Mishnah. You can be absolutely certain that the fourth one is not what Jesus meant here. In fact, he spent most of his public life debating with the Pharisees about their false interpretation and their false understanding of what God intended by the law. 
He debated with them about their misunderstanding of what God meant originally by his law. And that is why I believe that specifically Jesus was referring to the Ten Commandments, but more generally he was referring to the entire Old Testament. The entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. Because that fourth understanding of the book of the law would absolutely surprise you at the incredible tediousness by which they added the burden and the pressure on God's people to do things and and perform things that God never intended for them to perform. I want to give you just one example of millions. I want to give you just one very simple example, and that is the commandment of keeping the Sabbath day holy. God who made us know us, He knows that we can get busy working. He knows that we can get busy playing. He knows that we can get busy socializing. So he said, one day out of seven, you're going to take that and you're going to rest. And the purpose of your rest is that you focus on the God who made you. That you worship the Lord your God. That you'll honor the Lord your God. The Sabbath was given for focusing on God. That's really what it meant. That's what God meant by it. And Jesus corrected their misunderstanding of it. Well, what happened? A group of rabbis, that was too nebulous for them. So I said, what constituted rest? Well, a group of rabbis said, well, carrying a burden is a sin. And you shouldn't do that on the Sabbath. A few years later, another group of rabbis came in and said, well, well, what constitutes a burden? Let us define burdens. I hate it when people get too technical. You know what I mean? Too detailed, too minutiae. Drive me nuts. So, I want to read to you. Just a sample of what the rabbi said a burden is. Anything that is heavier than a fig is a burden. Any amount of milk that is more than one swallow is a burden. More than enough honey to apply on a small wound, that's a burden. More than enough oil to anoint a small part of the body, that's a burden. More than enough water to moisten an eye salve. That's a burden. More than enough paper to write a note on. That's a burden. More than enough ink to write two letters of the alphabet. That's a burden. And on and on and on. And as far as these Pharisees were concerned... To carry anything heavier than these things, you have broken the law, you have sinned before God, and you must go and offer a sacrifice. Aren't you glad you don't live back then? So when Jesus was referring to the law, he was referring specifically, as I said, to the Ten Commandments, and more generally to the Old Testament. Because they were authored by God. Not the traditional interpretation, not their understanding of the rabbis, but the word of God given in the Old Testament. Secondly, Jesus is the authenticator of the law. He authenticated the law. When God the Father spoke to his people who just came out of Egypt, he said to them, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, who brought you out of the land of slavery. And therefore, God the Son does not come here to abolish what God the Father has said. He came to fulfill it. He came to authenticate it. Think about it this way. The law of God is like the outline. And Jesus filled in the details and the colors. The law of God like a divine sketch. 
And Jesus gave its dimensions meanings. Think of it like a big house or a building that is almost complete. The only thing it lacked is a roof. And Jesus Christ gave it that roof. Because the word fulfill here means to complete that which is already present. And Jesus did not add new or totally different thing to what God already has authored. But rather he clarified God's original meaning. He clarified God's original intent by giving that law. Not only that he clarified the original intent of God the Father. He lived it fully. He lived it perfectly. And he is the only one who did. No one before him ever could. No one after him ever can. He authenticated the law because he's the only one who perfectly obeyed the law of the Father. And that is why all the ceremonial part of the laws have ended with Jesus Christ. They have ended because he and he alone became its fulfillment. He and he alone became our great high priest. He and he alone became the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for our sins. He and he alone became our ultimate feast and festivity. If you contrast the high priest in the old covenant with our great high priest, the Lord Jesus Christ, you cannot help but see it so clearly. Because in the old covenant, the high priest annually entered into an earthly tabernacle. But Jesus entered into the heavenly tabernacle. The high priest in the old covenant used to enter into the tabernacle once a year. But Jesus entered once and for all. The high priest in the old covenant went beyond the veil. But the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, ripped the veil in two. The high priest offered many sacrifices. Jesus offered only one sacrifice. The high priest offered sacrifice for his own sins. But Jesus offered sacrifices for the sins of others. For he was sinless. The high priest offered the blood of bulls. But Jesus Christ offered his own blood. The high priest was always temporary. Jesus is the only one who's permanent. He's the only one who's eternal. The high priest was changeable. Christ Jesus is unchangeable. The high priest is continual. Christ is the final. The high priest's sacrifice was imperfect. But the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest's sacrifice was perfect. Even the offering themselves, they found their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The burnt offering was a symbol of perfection. Christ was perfection incarnate. The meal offering was a symbol of dedication. Jesus was the authentic picture of dedication to his Father. The peace offering was a symbol of peace with God. Jesus himself is our peace. The sin offering was a symbol of substitution, but Christ Jesus himself is our substitution. But even the feasts and the festivals of the old covenant, they found their fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Passover was meant to celebrate deliverance from physical death, but the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our Passover, delivered us from spiritual and eternal death. The feast of the unleavened bread was meant for holiness. Jesus fulfilled all holiness. The feast of the fruit meant to celebrate the harvest. But when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, he became the first fruit of all who have fallen asleep. 
The feast of the tabernacle was meant for reunion. But only through the Lord Jesus Christ can we have perfect reunion with the Father. Both now and in heaven. He authenticated the law and the prophets. And thirdly, Jesus seemed to be indicating that those who abrogate the scripture are doomed, are judged. Please listen to me very carefully. It is impossible to accept Christ's authority without accepting the authority of the scripture. They stand together. It is impossible to say, I am under the authority of Jesus Christ and you refuse the authority of his word. To accept Jesus as the Savior and the Lord of your life is to accept what he taught in the scripture. And what he taught in the scripture here in Matthew 5, 19, Jesus said, whoever annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do so, be called least in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever keeps it teaches shall be called the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. There is an element of judgment here. Have you ever heard people who are continuously flaunting the law of God and and their excuse and not keeping it say, well, today we live under grace, we don't live under the law. I think this is a travesty of understanding the meaning of grace. In verse 19, Jesus is saying that those who abrogate the commandments and the laws of God will be judged as the least. Jesus is not telling us that we are saved by keeping the law. Don't misunderstand me. That is not what I'm saying. He is not telling us that we are saved by keeping the law. No and a million no. But he was saying to us that if I try to wiggle from under the standard of the law, then I want to tell you, Baba, you're in trouble with God. Now, Jesus didn't say that. I said that. It's a rough translation, but you get the meaning. There have been people throughout history who have tried to annul the law of God and paid terrible price for it. In the second century, there was a famous heretic by the name of Marcion who rewrote the New Testament and literally eliminated all references to Old Testament from it. Naturally, he erased this passage altogether. Later on, some of his followers went even further. They dared even to reverse its meaning by exchanging the verbs. So this passage read as follows. I have come not to fulfill the law and the prophets, but to abolish them. The wicked Russian monk Rasputin was guilty of terrible crimes, terrible, unbelievable wickedness. Because of his strong influence upon the empress of Russia, he managed to force some good people out of office and replace them by some of his drunken cronies. And Rasputin shamelessly promoted evil. And all along he was saying, and I read, that if Russia sinned more, she would experience more of God's grace. And we all know what happened to that Russia. And we all know of the horrors of the Bolshevik Revolution. And I want to tell you, my precious friends, and you know I love this country with all my heart, but we are in this country seeing the danger right upon us. We are in a worse danger than that which led Russia to communism. And it could lead us to something even worse. When wickedness abounds, when morality is ignored, when we say so what to every shameful and immoral expression of our society, when we do that, we are opening ourselves to confusion. We are opening ourselves to chaos. 
and will give room for a wicked dictator to rise. And I want to tell you, I lived under dictatorships. I know what it's like, and you don't want that. God's moral laws are the reflection of God's very character, and therefore it is changeless. It is eternal. It is as relevant today as it was the day God gave it to Moses. I remember, I think it was Ted Koppel speaking to a commencement at Duke University. He said, I have never read anywhere said that there were ten suggestions. How about that from a Jewish man, huh? Those who say that because we are saved by grace, therefore we do not have to obey God's laws is utter falsehood. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said in Romans six fifteen. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law but rather grace? May it never be. What grace does, it removes the penalty of the law. What the Holy Spirit does, that he empowers us to live freely, to live joyfully under obeying the righteousness of the law. And if Jesus himself never diminished or disobeyed God's moral law, how can his followers dare to do so? The Old Testament law reveals to me my sin. That's the purpose of it. That is why it must never be done away with. It's a mirror. It helps reveal to me my sinfulness. It helps reveal to me my inadequacy. It helps reveal to me my helplessness without the Lord Jesus Christ. God is the author of the law. Jesus is the authenticator of the law. We can't abrogate its demands. And fourthly, and finally, God will only accept those whose righteousness shall exceed or does exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Verse 20 of Matthew 5. For I say to you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Every time I prepare a passage and as I study it in the presence of God, and I try to imagine myself in one of the hearers of Jesus, the original hearers. I try to put myself in their place, average layman. I mean, listen, on the surface, when you think about it, you have to conclude it's hopeless. It's impossible. There is no way. No can do. I mean, these guys spent every waking moment pouring over the thousands of the details of the law and the interpretations of the law and the tradition. These guys followed meticulously all the rituals and the details of the rituals. I mean, these guys were so careful... That they wrote themselves notes on the wall and on the fridges and even on their forehead. Don't forget to obey the law. And you say, man, if these ones are not going to make it, I'm not going to make it. But listen carefully, please. If meticulousness in rituals and an observing of the rituals will get people to heaven, these Pharisees will make it hands down. But that's not what Jesus said. That's not what he said. Because to please God, you have to have righteousness that no one, but no one, but no one, but no one can possibly have or accomplish by himself or by herself. If you spend every waking moment and every sleeping moment, it ain't going to get you to heaven. The first step of having this required righteousness that righteousness which exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes and the law professors and the religious leaders of Jesus' day. The first step 
is what we discovered in the Master's Manifesto long time ago. And it is to declare spiritual bankruptcy. That's what will give you that righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees. You know, the Jews used to say, if two people only would make it to heaven, one is going to be a Pharisee, another one is going to be a scribe. You can understand. I mean, you can understand why. Because these fellows were more concerned by keeping the rituals and the traditions and thinking that this is how they're going to obligate God to let them into heaven. Well, what is Jesus saying? Here's what Jesus is saying. No way, Jose. That's really what it means. In the original language. As if Jesus is saying, listen, if you want to get to my heaven... You've got to have my righteousness, which is the only righteousness that exceeds that of the Pharisees and the scribes. And there's only one way you can get my righteousness. It's not by asserting yourself. It's not by your, all your successes. There's only one way you can get my righteousness. Not by pouring your heart out. No, it is by being broken before God in repentance and faith. I think of these Pharisees who were only concerned with appearances. They were only concerned with societal approval. They were only concerned with what people say of them, how people speak of them. And here's Jesus was saying, hypocrisy is no substitute for holiness. Rituals are no substitute for righteousness. You know, in many ways, the Pharisees of old and the scribes are like the neo-orthodox and the liberals of our day. They took biblical terms and redefined them and they set it into their own human perspective and philosophies. What is the purpose of them doing it today or doing it 2,000 years ago? I can tell you it is simple. Self-glory. Self-glory. I often think of how tragic it is That in these days, 2,000 years after the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we find that in our society, in our churches, those who are more like the Pharisees than those who seek the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are busy keeping up appearances. They are busy beautifying the outside. And inwardly, they're full of pride. They're full of self-sufficiency. They're full of self. Even among Christians, pride and self-sufficiency is rampant. Somehow, we will pay the price, any price, for not accepting the price that Jesus has already offered on the cross. And somehow, we convince ourselves that we really can please God and please ourselves at the same time. Where are you? Are you among the Pharisees who are so concerned about outward appearance and what people think? Or have you covered yourself with the righteousness of Jesus Christ? Are you more concerned with what people say than what Jesus say? Probably somebody here who's in neither group. Maybe a person who is trying to find the truth. You're trying to figure it all out. You've been sitting on the fence and you've been listening and and you've been hearing and you're trying to figure it all out. You're interested but you have not come 
under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ and be covered by his righteousness. Because he is the beginning and the end. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the only one who can get you to heaven. There is no other way. You can come to him today. It is a challenge of my own life ministry. As long as God gives me a breath to proclaim his message. Is to always bring you to a verdict. Bring you to a moment of decision. If the Holy Spirit has spoken to you today, I urge you, decide. You need to repent. Repent. You need to come to the Lord Jesus for the first time in your life. You've never committed your life to him. Do so today. You have been trying so hard, living under legalism, trying to accomplish it with your own effort and with your own understanding. Let that burden go today. And receive the righteousness of Jesus Christ. There are so many people who know Jesus. They're born again. But their life is a constant legalism. It's constant struggle and pain. Jesus wants to free you today. Please let him. Heavenly Father. We come to you. As your people. And we come to that very throne room of God. Of which you have received us already. And truly mind-boggling, Lord, to think that the God of the universe who said, be and it happen, is delighted to listen to us. To the deep agonies of hearts that words probably cannot be expressed. We thank you for that privilege. And we don't take it for granted and we come to you. Father, for those of us who know you but somehow have fallen in the trap of Phariseeism, Free us up today. For those of us who have never received your righteousness, cover us today. And for those, Lord Jesus, who have not known you yet, we pray that they come under your conviction today, that they may walk out of these doors free men and women who know Jesus in a personal way. We thank you for answering our prayers. Because our prayer of faith come to you, not in our own goodness, but in Jesus' goodness. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Dr. Michael Youssef, recently featured on Leading the Way. If you'd like to know more about us, please visit ltw.org. That's ltw.org.